I guess to kind of put it in context, that data comes from a survey of people who experience quite complex mental health issues. So their interaction with health professionals is generally pretty regular. They're pretty frequent um, users of health services to get the kind of help and support that they need to manage um, their mental health issues. But it's really concerning that people actually um, walk away from their interactions with health professionals feeling that they've been judged, feeling like they've been stigmatised and Unfortunately, the consequence of that is that people often withdraw from seeking help. The one of the things that really stuck with me from that particular piece of research was um, we asked people whether they had ever stopped themselves from doing particular things. So, you know, have you stopped yourself from getting help for a physical health problem or have you stopped yourself from ringing an emergency service when you need it? And a huge proportion of people said they actually wouldn't call an ambulance if they really needed one because they were afraid they were going to be judged on the basis of their mental health. You've just been listening to Dr. Michelle Planchard discuss some of the recent research that has identified subgroups of the population that tend to express more stigmatizing views regarding mental health. In this episode, we're going to explore recent research from the National Mental Health Commission and discuss stigma and discrimination related to mental health in Australia and the broader implications. Hello or welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Mowat, jumping on today with Luke Postlethwaite instead of your usual host, Daniel R. Biller. When Dan does step back from an episode, I always enjoy the opportunity to sit down with some incredible minds and this episode's guest was a particularly thought-provoking one. But before we jump in, if you do enjoy our podcast, please subscribe and share with your colleagues and friends. And don't forget to check out our online and face-to-face courses for health professionals, as well as our clinician mentorship program at www.tkex.org. I'd also like to note that we have just launched our new self-paced online course, Decoding Science and Research, which is all about getting more out of your time reading research detecting the good quality findings from the nonsense and not getting distracted by the vast number of opinions and conflicting thoughts regarding clinical practice. If that sounds up your alley, head to www.tkex.org forward slash science to learn more and get started. Now, without further ado, I would like to introduce you to today's guest, Dr. Michelle Blanchard. Dr. Michelle Blanchard is a special advisor at the National Mental Health Commission, leading the development of the National Stigma and Discrimination Reduction Strategy. Prior to joining the commission, Michelle was Deputy CEO at SANE Australia and the founding director of SANE's Anne Deverson Research Centre, which partners with people affected by mental ill health, trauma and distress to catalyse social change. Michelle is also an honorary senior fellow at the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne. She has held senior roles at the Butterfly Foundation for Eating Disorders and the Young and Well Cooperative Research Centre. She was also an honorary research fellow at the Centre for Youth Mental Health, University of Melbourne. In addition to holding academic qualifications in psychology, political science, adolescent health and welfare and leadership and management, Michelle has a PhD in youth mental health. Michelle's work is challenging and I think extremely relevant to recognise and consider in clinical practice and also from a personal front. I hope you find our chat as fascinating as we did. 
We have Michelle Blanchard from the National Mental Health Commission, and she's leading the development of a national stigma and discrimination reduction strategy. Would you like to tell us this, what that means exactly? Yeah, so the National Mental Health Commission is a government agency. Um, we exist to provide independent advice to the Australian government on mental health and suicide prevention reform. And as part of that work, we've been tasked by National Cabinet to develop a national strategy to tackle stigma and discrimination towards people affected by mental health issues. Yeah, really interesting. And when we talk about stigma and discrimination in this context, what are we talking about? What are the definitions we're working with? Yeah, so a lot of the time people think that stigma is just about judging people, but it's actually a far more complex concept. So we talk about stigma in, in three different ways. So public stigma, which is how people feel about people who might be affected by mental health issues, so the attitudes of the general community. There's self-stigma, which is about how we feel about ourselves when we might experience a mental health problem. And then there's structural stigma, which is where um, the actions of our systems, our institutions, result in people being treated unfairly. Um, and that's actually discrimination. So it's that behaviour of, of being treated differently. Yeah, okay. And can you give us like a bit of an example of, I guess, in this report, um, an example where that stigma is has been kind of structurally driven? Yeah, so a really good example is in the workplace. So that's a place where people often say that they experience stigma and discrimination. And it might be someone getting overlooked for a promotion for a job because their boss doesn't think they'll be able to handle the stress or doesn't think they'll be able to cope with, with doing that role because of their experience. Yeah, okay, right. Um, and so what did this sort of report kind of sort of look at overall? Like what, what were the things that you were kind of, I guess, trying to identify? Yeah, there's a couple of different pieces of research that um, have informed the work we're doing on the strategy. One is a stigma report card. And then the other is a piece of research that was done by the behavioural economic team of the Australian government. So they surveyed just under 8,000 people um, who uh, broadly represent the Australian population. Um, so almost half of them had experienced some form of mental health problem at some point in their lifetime. And many more had cared for or supported someone who had. Um, and based on that research, they estimated that 4 million Australians experienced some form of stigma and discrimination on the basis of mental ill health in the last 12 months, which is just an extraordinary number. Yeah, that, that's just insane, isn't it? Um, it? In terms of, you know, some of the responses you, you came you know, came across, like yeah. what did you kind of find were like the key themes of, you know, that were kind of coming through in the data? Yeah, so what the beta team found was that even though we now have far more awareness of mental health issues in the community and for the most part people wanted to be supportive and understanding of those who are experiencing mental health problems, unfortunately they still um, held some pretty stereotypical beliefs about people um, particularly those people who might have been experiencing what we call more complex mental health issues, so things like schizophrenia or personality disorder or eating disorders. Um, and unfortunately that meant that um, a lot of people indicated they still didn't want to spend a lot of time with people who had those experiences. So they may not have felt comfortable um, being in a relationship with a person with those experiences or um, 
employing them in a in a role or having them marry into their family. Right. So it doesn't sound like it's by any malicious intent. People want to not be yeah. stigmatizing. They yeah. don't want to discriminate. We all want to be good people. Yeah. But what we're seeing is regardless of that intent, yeah. we still are. So is there a kind of a gap? I guess in terms of our understanding as a society or uh, you know our local community and nationally yeah. um, of what stigma is and discrimination, why yeah. is there yeah discrepancy? I, th- I think there is. So I think um, people's attitudes are informed by so many different factors. You know, by their own personal values and their belief system. Um, by the experiences that they've had, by what they read in the media, what they see in movies. And so all of those things combine to um, give people a particular impression of what life looks like when you experience a mental health problem. And um, sometimes it means that people jump to conclusions or they take a bit of a cognitive shortcut to get to um, an explanation for someone's behaviour or what they think someone might be like. And it results in people being treated pretty unfairly. Sometimes that's a really um, overt behaviour around excluding someone or treating them poorly. But other times it can be a lot more subtle and a lot more nuanced as well. So in in the data then, were there any particular variables or characteristics um, that seem to correlate with people either being more or less stigmatising towards these groups or discriminating? There were. So in the research that the beta team did, they um, found that there were three different groups in the community that tended to express more stigmatising views. So that included men, um, younger people, and also people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. I always put a really big caveat on that last one. All of the ways that we understand mental health problems and that we research stigma tend to focus on pretty white Western ways of understanding mental health. And so the kind of measures that we use aren't particularly valid. Um, The other thing that was a really interesting factor was that those people who actually had higher levels of mental health literacy and tended to hold more medicalised views of what a mental health issue was tended to be the people that expressed more stigmatising views. Seems a little counterintuitive, but um, it's definitely what we were seeing in the data. So there's so much I want to unpack just yeah. in, in, in that alone. And so in terms of mental health literacy, so you're saying yeah. higher mental health literacy yeah. resulted in higher levels of stigmatisation. Yeah. So what is our, I guess, when we you know measure mental health literacy, yeah. what's that capturing? What are the, yeah. I guess, the constructs within that that we're we're looking at and yeah what are we thinking that's that's yeah that seems bizarre right right? yeah so usually mental health literacy has focused on people being able to recognize the signs and symptoms of a mental health issue and to describe it so that usually means putting some sort of label on the experience so if someone is restricting their food intake and over-exercising and obsessed with their size, shape, weight, that might be a label that we'd give it around anorexia nervosa, for example. 
So mental health literacy is often being able to go, yeah, cool, that looks like that. That might be that experience and that person might need some help and support for that issue. Fascinating. And so in terms of, I mean, when I think about medicalization and diagnosing, quite often we're talking about what's wrong with that individual. And when we talk about mental health, like you said, it's it's a biopsychosocial component. Like there, there is often an environment that dictates how we feel within yeah. in the world and you know a social component to that and obviously we're biological so everything we experience is biological yeah. fundamentally yeah so is it that we need to start moving away from you know thinking about people as a diagnosis and start and talk more about the the situations the environments and, yeah. and coming up with programs around that or i guess what are your thoughts because i mean you've also been working on the strategy right so so i'd love to talk a little bit more about that definitely so there's there's a heap in that but um what we tend to find is that when people do take that biopsychosocial approach when they understand that mental health issues um, are experienced by a lot of us in the community because of a really complex interaction of our biology our psychology, our social environment, they tend to develop a sense of empathy. One of the challenges with a medicalized understanding of, of mental health issues is that we see them purely as problems of the brain. And so the logical conclusion from that is that the person's not in control of their behavior. And so if they're not in control, maybe they're unpredictable. And if they're unpredictable, maybe they're dangerous can kind of see the path that people follow. Whereas if we go, well, actually, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on, including a number of factors that we can actually intervene in. So we can um, address some of the belief systems that might be underpinning someone's experience. We can change the social environment that that person might be um, living in or experiencing the world in then we can actually start to give people a sense of control and a sense that um, these are issues that can be um, lived with and and managed really well and that won't mean that a person behaves um, in a way that's unpredictable or dangerous or or any of those really unhelpful beliefs. So in terms of actually developing a a strategy to reduce that, we think that... um, we need to move beyond some of the really traditional approaches to tackling stigma. So usually stigma reduction, um, people think about television campaigns or training programs that are just about raising awareness or changing people's attitudes. What we actually need to do is change some of the structural barriers to inclusion for people who experience mental health issues, um, change some of the ways that we operationalise things in the health system so that people experience care in a really different way and change the cultures in those systems too so that um, people have an experience of healthcare, for example, that's really compassionate and kind and doesn't leave people feeling worse than, than when they walk through the door. It's interesting that you say that because obviously one of the things in the report was... Um, 20 something percent 26 percent was it i think somewhere in there we're, we're, we're impacted I we're, 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 mm. we're severely impacted by stigmatizing views of their healthcare yeah. provider yeah 
and that was sort of similar percentages that they got from Instagram or social media. Yeah. And so seeing someone like us is yeah. just as dangerous as engaging with social media, which seems crazy to me. Yeah. So I guess to kind of put it in context, that data comes from a survey of people who experience quite complex mental health issues. So their interaction with health professionals is generally pretty regular. They're pretty frequent um, users of health services to get the kind of help and support that they need to manage um, their mental health issues. But it's really concerning that people actually um, walk away from their interactions with health professionals feeling that they've been judged, feeling like they've been stigmatised and Unfortunately, the consequence of that is that people often withdraw from seeking help. The one of the things that really stuck with me from that particular piece of research was um, we asked people whether they had ever stopped themselves from doing particular things. So, you know, have you stopped yourself from getting help for a physical health problem or have you stopped yourself from ringing an emergency service when you need it? And a huge proportion of people said they actually wouldn't call an ambulance if they really needed one because they were afraid they were going to be judged on the basis of their mental health, which could have really dire consequences for people if they were in crisis or they were experiencing a really, really significant physical health issue as well. So excuse my darting all over the shop. Brendan, okay. Brendan was controlling the mic. But there's uh, <laughs> something you said earlier as well, which was that young people were more likely yeah. to stigmatise people with mental health or, or didn't yeah. want to live with, with someone with mental health. Can you yeah. just touch on that for me? So young people tended to express more stigmatising views. And so this one really made us scratch our heads because we thought, you know, young people are growing up in an environment where people are far more open about their mental health. We've got lots of really um, important and targeted services available for young people around their mental health and wellbeing. We think this one probably comes down to life experience. So we know that one of the best ways to actually reduce stigma and discrimination is through what's called contact intervention. So basically spending time with people, getting to know them, because you develop a sense of empathy. You see them as, as a person just like you. Um, but for a lot of young people, they might have seen a friend become quite unwell, but they may not have seen that, that friend come out the other side yet just because of life experience and time. Um, and so perhaps as they get older, as they spend more time with that person um, and as they start to see what recovery might look like, um, we hope that would, that would change some of their, their views. There's actually um, some really interesting research too that young people spend an extraordinary amount of time supporting their mates when they're going through really difficult times. Um, there's some research that was done by um, a group called Batia, who are a really fantastic organisation that do programs in schools and universities. And it was something like young people spent somewhere between three and four hours a week supporting their friends um, in terms of their friends' mental health and wellbeing. So, while they might kind of have these um, views that they're holding, they're actually trying to do the right thing and, and help their mates out as well. So they want to help. They're yeah. essentially doing the right thing. But is it the narrative that they use is becoming stigmatising because of some sort of negative association with like fatigue or being exhausted themselves from being in that, that helping or supporting role? Yeah, or not being sure what to do or being afraid that they might do or say something 
that might make the situation worse. So I think a lot of the time people um, want to be really supportive, but they also know that um, if they do or say the wrong thing, that might be really distressing for the person. So people tend to kind of steer clear of providing any support because they think that might be the consequence. Um, so there's huge potential for us to kind of build people's capacity to support their friends, their family, um, and also then for people who are in a whole bunch of different professional roles to help them to be able to have some of those conversations as well. I personally have done my mental health first aid. Yep. And you leave that course feeling relatively confident to have yeah. some conversations with people who may be in a spot where they need to have some yep. tougher conversations. But uh, since then it's, you know, been alluded to that maybe there's not a whole lot of research about the outcomes of doing those courses apart from the practitioners at least feeling confident to have yeah. conversations, but it doesn't really change the trajectory of those interactions. Yeah. And, and there's so much anxiety or stress around wanting to do the right thing and not wanting to make mistakes. Yeah. What sort of advice do you have to people like us and just the general population around first aid, first aid mental health training? Yeah. So I think any training you can get your hands on that helps you to understand more about mental health issues and how you can support someone who might be experiencing them is a really positive thing. One of the things that we know actually makes those kinds of training even more effective is when they're delivered by people with lived experience of mental health issues. And it comes back to that idea of a contact-based intervention. So the most powerful storytellers, the most powerful trainers are those people who have walked that path before um, because it helps you to actually see um, and have those interactions with someone and go, oh, yeah, they're, they're no different from me. You know, they um, are interested in the same things I'm interested in. They have a job like I have. They have a family like I do. And it, it kind of um, humanises people in a way and, and you kind of build a sense that there's a bit of a common humanity. And that's actually one of the most powerful things in tackling stigma and discrimination. So you know, would really encourage people that are thinking about doing these kind of training programs to look out for ones that are provided by people with lived experience or in partnership with people with lived experience because um, it's just such a great way of being able to build that that sense of, of compassion for their experiences. Mm, empathy and, and whatnot. Yeah. I think, um, I, I mean, that completely makes sense um, to me. And I think one of the things that still has me reeling a little bit is that we we seemingly and please correct me if I'm wrong seemingly have more mental health campaigns more awareness than yeah. we've ever had in history yeah and we seemingly have more stigma and more yeah. discrimination based on this yeah is there a potential that there is almost an implicit harm that's come with the way that we've gone about these mental health awareness campaigns, yep. strategies, maybe even mental health first aid. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm just really keen. Yep. Um, I guess it's a personal interest of mine is, mm -hmm. you know, the unseen harms in healthcare where we yeah. go, oh, no, this seems virtuous. It seems really helpful. Like yeah. from face value, it's great. Yep. But is there potential there that, you know, maybe we need to rethink the way that we've traditionally been going about this? Definitely. So um, 
For a really long time, we thought that the best way to destigmatize mental health issues was um, to say they're just like physical health issues. So people will say, oh, well, having a mental um, health problem is no different to having cancer or diabetes or a whole range of other physical health conditions. They are different. You know, they um, present in very different ways. They impact people's lives in different ways. And the idea of kind of um, treating these issues as a medical problem like any other means that people tend to fall back on that kind of biological understanding, which then feeds into some of these negative attitudes people hold. So it's not that we shouldn't be doing awareness campaigns, we shouldn't be doing training, but that we've actually got to get far more nuanced about the kinds of messages that we include in those materials. Um, it's not as simple as saying, um, you know, go get help for your mental health, it's just like you get help for your physical health because the kinds of beliefs that people are going to hold around those experiences, either themselves or for someone else, are, are inherently different. So we've got to actually have um, stigma reduction initiatives that engage really directly with those beliefs. So a really good example is when we um, talk about reducing self-stigma and promoting help-seeking. So for a person who themselves is experiencing a mental health issue, one of the really big challenges we need to overcome is people feeling like they're a burden, so actually feeling like reaching out for help and support puts a burden on the health professional, on their family, on the people around them. And so you actually need to target that belief around burdensomeness rather than just saying, oh, no, don't worry about it. You shouldn't, you shouldn't feel bad about seeking help. You're not actually changing the belief that's underlying um, how people are, are behaving. So in terms of, I guess, using like that, mm. that idea, is there anything in the pipe? pipeline i know you know we've got some really cool research methodologies that are coming yeah. through where it's using people with lived experience yeah. as being you know co-authors essentially yeah. on publications and they're a part of that, that co-creation of a design of marketing campaigns that sort of thing yeah. and, and workshopping is there things like that in this space happening yeah absolutely so um in terms of lived experience leadership, one of the really fantastic things we've seen in Australia just in the last two weeks actually is the Minister for Health, Mark Butler, has announced um, an investment of about $7.5 million over a couple of years to support the creation of some consumer and care peak organisations. Um, and that's going to be a really fantastic avenue for folks with a lived experience to be driving mental health reform. Um, and to be working alongside the sector to design new interventions and, and new ways of responding and meeting people's needs. Um, but I think in terms of stigma reduction, it's also about how we really understand people's behaviour and work to remove some of those barriers to inclusion that people face. Um, so moving from kind of just changing the conversation to actually changing the, the behaviours in our services and, and the way that things operate. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about um, some of the barriers, I suppose, people with mental health conditions are facing. I'm, I'm back on the workplace now. Yeah. This is how my brain works. <laughs> um, and, and, and as a small business owner myself, yeah. the, there's a whole bunch of risk involved with hiring anybody yep. to start with. And yeah. there's a whole lot of investment 
in, in training and yep. all of those types of things. And I, I, could, I suppose I'm looking at it from two lenses going, as, as a business owner, you want to rid of, mitigate as much risk as possible. Mm -hmm. And then I think to, I was trying to reflect and listen at the same time about yeah. where do my beliefs come from? Yeah. And my experience, I could say fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, is, is very low as far as the lived experience. Yeah. I haven't had anyone super close to me. I haven't had to live with someone yeah. at least. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you're using the right language here, like suffering through, through that. Experiencing. That experiencing. Yep. Thank you through that phase um so i would feel anxious i suppose yep. is the word i'd use around hiring someone because i would not know how to and yeah. then i start thinking i wouldn't know what to do i need yep. support this is all starting to sound really hard yeah not that i would ever ask the question and hire based on or based off yeah i'm assuming that's where some of those beliefs come from yeah how would say this strategy or what advice would you give to someone in a similar boat essentially. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a really common concern that business owners have, not just small businesses, but it happens in, in big corporates as well, where you know, people um, you know, find the right candidate for the job, but they're just not sure if they can provide the support that that person might need. Um, there are some really great resources out there. The commission actually leads um, with the Mentally Healthy Workplace Alliance, the National Workplace Initiative. And there's a whole bunch of resources for businesses on how they can set themselves up to support people who might be experiencing mental health problems in the workplace. There's also some really great resources. There's one in particular um, from the US that um, I'm going to forget the name of it, but it's a, a really great website where you can actually look up a whole bunch of health and mental health issues. And it provides you with a list of the kinds of reasonable adjustments that might actually be useful for someone who um, is experiencing a particular mental health issue. So, for example, you might have someone who um, needs to take medication to manage their mental health issue, which might mean that they feel pretty horrible every morning, but they might be on fire by three o'clock. So putting them in an afternoon shift where they might be able to work a little bit later um, when they're not so affected by their medication could be a really great strategy and they could be a fantastic employee. So kind of thinking about what's what's reasonable, what you can accommodate within your business so that you, you're working to people's strengths can be really useful. And this is where, um, and I'm trying to apply this in my brain, so I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm running a scenario where I've got this new candidate, they're amazing yeah. and I'm now aware of, said mental health condition and yep. I've sat down with them going, I really want this to work. How do yeah. this happen? But then now I've got this wave of realisation that am I contributing to this person's sense of burdenness because yep. I'm making all these adjustments? Yeah. Like how yep. would one? Yeah. So, and I know yeah. there's probably not going to be a right answer to this question yet. So I think it's about just having a really open, compassionate conversation with the person around you know, we want to support you to be successful in this role. Um, what do you need from us that is going to make that worthwhile um, and make that doable? And so then kind of reinforcing the value that the person's bringing to your workplace as well. So, you know, making sure that you're recognising the positive contribution that they are making, that, you know, acknowledging it's really great that you've been able to do such a great job with that particular program or that particular thing you're doing for us. 
um, so that people feel valued and, you know, they're not kind of sitting there um, waiting for, for something negative to happen. One of the things that's really interesting in all of the research that we've been doing around understanding stigma is um, this concept of anticipated stigma, which is where people will often fear that they will experience stigma and discrimination and as a result they'll withdraw from different opportunities. So in the workplace that means not applying for a job or not applying for a promotion, not putting your hand up to work on a cool new thing because you just assume that you're going to be treated poorly or treated unfairly. And so sometimes people might need a little bit of extra support and encouragement to put their hand up to do that kind of stuff um, because they're kind of primed to be really um, almost hyper-vigilant for uh, the things that are going to end up in, in a stigmatising or a discriminatory context. I thank you for that because I feel like we just workshopped my internal dilemma when Excellent. I was trying to uh, <laughs> figure that out and hopefully people listening got some value. Um, I have another question regarding... So... so in the, more in the dating world now. So yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking. <laughs> so is it true, like if, if I was to apply the same philosophy we just discussed there in the workplace, is it yeah. truly just coming from a place of inquisition? Yeah. Like just yeah. trying to understand what the other person needs, what yeah. they're looking for. And would you suggest that this is something that we have an upfront conversation about? Like is it like are we yeah. doing the money split thing and now we're going to talk about mental health or, you know, yeah, so this, this one's actually um, come up a lot. It was one of the areas when um, we did the, the stigma report card a couple of years ago that people talked about being um, a real issue for them was often that dilemma of when you are dating or even just forming new friendships with people. Like at what point do you tell them that you're someone who's had an experience of a mental health problem? And you know, sometimes for people it's really important that other people know up front it's an important part of their identity and who they are. For other people it's an experience they've had in their life at some point that's no different to having studied a particular thing or travelled a particular place. So it may not be super important for them to share that with someone up front. So it's kind of a bit of a, you know, um, it's a little bit different for different people, but same kind of principle, you know, look at the whole person, understand all of their life experience and then um, go from there. So just to be clear, not on the dating scene. Um, <laughs> but still <laughs> been, looking, yeah. Been with the lovely ever for 19 years. But I was thinking, um, yeah, if you were going to a relationship and you see a change in someone's yeah. mood, straight away questioning, oh, do you have some sort of mental health condition yeah. you'd like to talk about? And they're just like, I'm just having a shit day. Yeah. And and finding that in itself being, you know, accusative or, you know, a, yeah. a, a attack of character. Yeah. What I can't be down for the day, like. Which which is, I guess, this thing of um mental health issues are on a spectrum of human behaviour. And actually a lot of the time, mental health issues arise from living in this ridiculous world that we live in and the pressures that we face and the things that we've been exposed to along the way. Um, for some people that's super serious stuff like trauma, but for other people it's working a bunch of casual jobs and feeling really stressed and feeling like you're going to lose your job at any moment. And those things 
um, impact on people in different ways and, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff around how our brains respond to stress and trauma and, and all of those sorts of things. So it's really, um, I think, just about seeing the whole person and, you know, not kind of jumping to conclusions that there must be a diagnostic label or a pathological reason for why a person might be behaving a particular way, but just be kind of curious about, mm, you know, I've noticed something's a bit different about you lately. Is there something, you know, that I can help with or, or something you want to talk about rather than going, is it a mental health problem or is it a something else? Yeah. yeah almost the, this, the term, just listening to you, to you both speak and this that term mental health just seems so, it's in that person. It's yeah. a problem with that person. Yeah. Whereas like everything we've spoken about there is if we understand that actually environment is always there. Yeah. Until you're dead. Yeah. Like that is one of the fundamental components, you know, of, yeah. of that lived experience it is coming from that. Maybe we even have to change, you know, just that terminology mental health. And when yeah. we go, look, you're just having a hard time right now. What yeah. can I do to help? And, and if we, you know, understand that it is always biopsychosocial and that mm. that person has an experience that's completely unique to yours and everyone else's yeah. and yours is as well everything yeah. you've experienced that maybe we can try and you know find that empathy if we start viewing mental health as a just a, something completely different to what yeah. seems to be still so mainstream Definitely. Uh, you know is that am, am i off the mark there sorry i'm going no. on rant status no there. no <laughs> um i mean all of the kind of discourse often around um, mental health and mental health issues actually mental health is no different to physical health and there are times in your life when your mental health is going to be stronger than it is at other times in the same way there are times that your physical body is going to be stronger um, but the stigma around mental health issues means that when we talk about mental health even though it's a positive thing we jump to the conclusion that it's about the the illness or, or the disease kind of concept. So actually having a far broader definition is really helpful. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people talk about this concept of social and emotional well-being, which is actually a really lovely way of thinking about it in that it's about um, the person, their culture, their sense of identity, their connection to community, to land, um, and it. it you know, it just is a far more grounded way of understanding these experiences. Um, and I think there's a lot um, in that as well. That kind of reminds me, like, from a slightly different area where um, I guess I've done a lot of work in is, you know, in uh, the 90s, the, I think it was the early 90s, um, they went out uh, and did some qualitative research in Indigenous communities in, in rural Western Australia and, um, we're looking at low back pain and they yeah. found like the prevalence of low back pain was nearly absent. Um, yeah, wow. But the, their belief system around when they did experience this kind of discomfort in their back, this, yeah. this pain, you know, that they may have done something wrong, you know, by their belief system, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, that had been handed down over, you know, centuries. And so that, you know, suggests that they needed to leave their communities for a little while mm. and then, when the pain went away, you know, they'd come back and, yeah, you know, reform. they went back 20, 25 years later and conducted another qualitative study and some similar 
um, remote communities in Western Australia and found that um, by this stage, um, there's a lot more of a Western healthcare presence. So there was, you know, obviously with all really high positive intent to come yep. in, provide allied health services, general practitioners, yeah, um, imaging, all that sort of stuff. But the belief system had completely changed to yeah. this back pain. My doctor said, I'm not going to be, you know, I'll be in a wheelchair if I don't do something right. different, that my spine is crumbling, all of these things. And so pain and disability kind of shot through the roof yeah. by just having these, this language, these vocabularies yeah. and this biomedical view of yeah. the body. And it sounds very much like this is, the kind of same contrast that we're seeing in these same communities with mental yeah. health. It, it's definitely really similar and lots of people who have um, been given a diagnosis of something like schizophrenia, for example, will say that often early um, on in their interaction with health professionals, they're told that um, the prospects of recovery are very low, that they might find it difficult to hold a job, to have a relationship, all of these sorts of things. And that has devastating consequences for people in terms of how they see themselves and how they see their future. So it becomes really challenging for people to have a sense of hope and optimism about their lives when their, their health professional is going, well, you know, the, we're going to set the bar for you relatively low. Um, and it's it's pretty common, um, you know, I've spent the last kind of 20 years working in mental health and unfortunately it, it's quite a frequent experience that people will recount that, you know, that early interaction with a health professional really um, set them on a, on a different path. And, and where does that come from? Is that part of the university curriculum that primes students in that realm with you know, you get the, all of the conditions yeah. and this is how it all goes pear shaped. So I know like in our musk world, it's like, here's the tissue and this is how it breaks down. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that sort of where you think this comes from? So it comes from lots of different places, but I think that's definitely part of it. Like I remember studying psychology about 22 years ago and still being shown videos in the classroom of um, people experiencing catatonic schizophrenia, which is a really, really rare form of schizophrenia, but very debilitating. And that was the only lived experience that we were exposed to at, at any point in our, in our undergraduate course. A friend of mine now um, teaches in the undergraduate psychology program at Melbourne Uni, and he has entire subjects where he has people with lived experience come in and share what life is like for them and what's been helpful and what's not. And so we can definitely change those narratives and those kinds of programs are growing. Um, but it's also about um, continuing people's education as well so that um, people don't take on some of the attitudes that unfortunately are still quite prevalent in our healthcare systems. So you know, we hear sometimes that really young, enthusiastic health professionals get into environments where some of those stigmatising views are still really prevalent um, and people start to take on those, those functions of those systems, um, which can, can kind of have um, quite negative results. But I think the other thing that's super important in a healthcare context is also um, having a space for reflective practice and supervision because, you know, you were talking before about um, 
the different things that might impact on how you feel about something, the kind of anxiety you might have about supporting someone in the workplace. It's the same in a health professional context. If you're concerned that um, your beliefs about a particular person's experience might impact the way that you treat or care for that person, having a space to actually be able to, to talk that through is really, really important. Is part of the problem, I'm assuming here, that GPs are first point of care. Yep. And they're generally very time poor. Uh-huh. And, and do you see that in some of this research data that, yeah. that their experience is not as great? So, unfortunately, one of the most common um, healthcare professionals that people experience stigma from is GPs. Um, which is really unfortunate because it is often the place where you go first Um, and it's also the place that you need to go in our system to be able to access a mental health care plan so that you can see a psychologist um, or to get any other sort of chronic chronic health plan. So there's definitely a little bit of work that we need to do there but no one gets into general practice or into medicine or into any other form of healthcare because they don't care about people. And, you know, it's more than just people's attitudes. It is those things about people are time poor, they're under a lot of pressure, um, they don't uh, necessarily think they have the skills or the capability to meet people's needs. And so sometimes when we don't think we've got the skills or the capability, we might withdraw. And so people can experience that in a really negative way. Um, so there's definitely a lot we need to change around some of those more structural uh, factors in in healthcare too. We've been priming a lot of questions. I'd love to <laughs> just let you tell me something that I might find interesting. Oh, something you might find interesting. So one of the things I find really interesting in this work is around self-stigma, so how people feel about themselves when they experience a mental health problem. And one of the things we think might work is to teach people self-compassion. And the really great thing about that is it's something you can train people for. You can go and do a mindful self-compassion course. You can um, do online programs. You can do in-person programs and retreats. And we find that those people who have higher levels of compassion for themselves are far less judgmental of their own experiences and and potentially other people's experiences as well and that that could actually be a really really helpful way of supporting people to feel more confident in the community to to get the help and support that they need um of course we've got to change society and and change the community as well but i actually think there's a lot of value in in those kinds of programs do we see a relationship in the research between people who had high levels of self-stigma and their stigmatising of others, or is that not something? Yeah. So it it has come up in a few research studies that I've seen, and one of those in particular was um, people who had an experience of anxiety, who had high levels of self-stigma, and also expressed stigmatising views towards other people who might be living with anxiety. And you can kind of follow it through because one of the things about anxiety is that you doubt yourself when you doubt your capability. And so if you think you can't do it, surely that person over there is not going to be able to do that thing either. So you get yourself a bit stuck. 
Um, so there is definitely um, pe- people who experience mental health issues are not immune from holding stigmatising views towards others. Um, we're all human. Um, and so we, we need to focus on that as well. Right, and you can be empathetic towards that, I think. Like, yeah. That's, that seems just like human, you know, being totally. human as well. Yeah. So yeah. I guess uh, a big part of this is probably not beating ourselves up, but trying to figure out how it is that we do do better yeah. and, and figure it out. But I think that's exactly. what you've spoken about has been absolutely fascinating, Michelle. Um, how does listeners get in touch with you or learn more about you and and the work that you're doing. Um, We'll obviously put links um, underneath um, this podcast as well. But, um, yeah. Definitely. So the National Mental Health Commission is the organisation I'm working with at the moment and we've got a website. It's mentalhealthcommission.gov.au. We're going to be keeping people up to date with how the national strategy is being developed. So we've just finished a big public consultation and we're reading through all of the submissions at the moment, but we should have some updates up on the site in the coming months about how all that work's going. Do we get any scoops or like early spoilers? Oh, it's pretty strong on human rights. Ooh, love it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you cool. so much for your time. No worries at I all. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And um, yeah, just, yeah. Keep a good fight. Yeah, yeah. You've, I reckon, solved some of our problems or at least got us thinking about yeah. some of the ways that we do things. So that's unreal. Awesome. Thanks.